This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You are now listening to British Birds, the True Cry podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and I have a special guest joining me for this episode. He spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of Australia's harshest environments. He's now a senior investigator, security, intelligence and crisis management. He's an expert in all of those in London. My guest is a fellow podcast host whose show, Protect and Serve, sees him chatting with men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations. Please welcome to the show, Oliver Lawrence. Thanks very much indeed for having me. It's an absolute honor to come on and I appreciate the invite immensely. No worries at all. So Oliver, before we get to my icebreaker, Oliver reached out to me in, I think it was October, on LinkedIn, which is quite a good resource, really, probably underutilized in in my life. I want to know how you found me. How did you find me? Well, like every great investigator, Stuart, if I revealed those secrets, I'd probably be in a bit of a pickle. <laughs> <laughs> my life's too boring to be investigated. You know, I, I was, I've been so intrigued by the art of podcasting since I started, you know, four or five months ago that I just wanted to to learn and absorb the skills of people like yourselves who've been doing it for so long and have got such incredible shows as to kind of, you know, the methodologies and the skills and, you know, the different interviewing techniques because it's so unique that I just did some creative LinkedIn research, if I'm honest with you, and you're along with many others, but, you know, your show just drew me to you in particular. So I just thought reach out and say the the classic Australian g'day and (laughs) see how we kind of hit things off. And then lo and behold, here I am. There you go. You've got a got an eye for the old, uh, an eye for the <laughs> eye for the crack, if you will. I'm not talking about the drug. So what I like to do at the start of each episode, Oliver, is I've got an icebreaker. It's nothing too deep. Don't worry about it. I just want to know, being a cop, a former cop, what's your favourite cop movie and why? Do you even like cop movies? <laughs> do you know what? That is an amazing question. Okay, well I'll tell you what. This is actually quite a funny story. So when I graduated out of I started in South Australia and I was an incredibly motivated young man who was stopping and booking everything that moved if my parents god bless them were living in South Australia I caught them speeding I probably would have given them a ticket without any worry whatsoever and I eventually um, I I became a bit of a problem to my teammates because here I was my statistics were through the roof and I was making everybody else kind of look bad you know (laughs) and I'm you know like so anyway so cut long story short down the future, I ended up in in a small country town called Swan Reach in the Riverland and was almost like the Nicholas Angel, the hot fuzz of Swan Reach. And and I watched this movie. I had an ex-colleague phoned me up, Paul Graham. He said, you've got to watch Hot Fuzz. It's you. He looks like you. His mannerisms are like you. <laughs> and he polices like you. So my nickname throughout then was Angel. Uh, so Hot Fuzz would probably be my favorite, favorite uh, cop movie. 
one of a bit of description. It is a good film. It's it's probably my least favourite in the what's it the Calypso trilogy that Simon Pegg and uh, is it what's he called Nick? Yeah, Nick I, I forget his name. I only know Simon Pegg, but yeah, yeah, Simon Pegg. Yeah. See, I don't like the rest. That one I like. Yeah, oh, yeah. that one I like. Well, I, like, I don't like the rest. Shaun of the Dead's the one for me. I really like Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> but yeah, oh, good answer. Hot fuzz. So yeah. there's a lot of time you spent in Australia, and you've mm. got a bit of a pseudo Australian twang in yes. your voice, <laughs> which makes sense living there for so long. I assume you were, you were born here, though. I'm all right. I was. So I was born in southeast London and lived in Peckham in the 1980s. Oh, so I was born in 80. I'm an 84 baby. Okay. And was born actually in Beckenham in Kent, but when we lived, we grew up in around Peckham and, and, and the southeast of London. And then eventually, as my parents' jobs sort of climbed through the ranks, we, we moved out into the into the burbs of Surrey and uh, grew up in in Coulston. But then fast forward the clock to 2002 and uh, kind of the start of digital photography and, and my father's move away from that style of photography because that's what he did his entire life we packed up and shipped over to australia all five of us my two siblings and my parents and i so uh, yeah off we went so 2002 so you were what 18 no a bit younger than that i was just turning um 16 17 16 17 yeah you said you were born in 84 is my maths wrong yeah, no, 16, 16's when we, yeah, August of 16, August of 2002. Hang on a minute. Someone's got bad maths here, Oliver. Hang 84 on. born. Yeah. 94 is 10. So 2002 makes you 18. Oh, there you go. All right. <laughs> You've got me doubting in my maths here. Actually, Might no. Be. Okay. No, you're right. Sorry. Okay. Let's, I, I, set, I was 17. I turned 18 that year. You know, you're spot on. My bad. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, I'm telling sorry. you your life story here. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> what a start. So what's it like then? You've, you've just turned 18. You're basically, well, you're just about to turn 18. You're becoming an adult. You spent your entire childhood, teenage, formative years in the UK. Mm. Culture-wise, what's that change like? Huge. Absolutely huge. I can't, I can't understate that enough, really. The culture is that we, we lived on the Gold Coast in Queensland, which is inevitably where I would end up doing most of my policing. And, you know, it's a surfing culture. It's kind of like Beverly Hills, you know, it's, you know, it's tanned bodies. It's, it's attractive women walking down the beach with bikinis. It's guys with, you know, bodies that you die for, you know, it's, and here was a young ginger young man who turned up with hair everywhere, you know, white as anything. I burn under a light bulb at the best of times. And so it was a huge culture shock and I went back into education. So I'd done my GCSEs and A-levels um, and had moved back. And as part of our visa requirements, I had to go back into school and I had to go back a couple of years. So I was the oldest kid in the year. So, you know, yeah, it was really difficult. But, you know, my brother who's still there sounds like almost like a Steve Irwin. You know, he has literally <laughs> become the Australian kind of, you know, what is an Australian stereotypically is what he is. Whereas I'd never really, you know, his accent is very strong, whereas mine hasn't taken long just to come back to what I consider to be what I was used to. But yeah, it was a big right. move, a huge challenge, but we got over it. I can imagine. I think the, the biggest thing when people move over there or visit on holiday, they typically go for like a month, don't they, rather than your standard one or two weeks because it's such a, a far way away. It's the size of the place that frightens me. The size is an interesting one because I actually didn't, I underestimated the size until I did two things. Worked in the outback for most of my career and went gold prospecting in Western Australia. 
And when you're flying oh, wow. over the, the remoteness of Western Australia and you're down there gold prospecting with a little metal detector, it's only then you realize, oh, my goodness, this country is just huge. And it is. It's just gigantic. Are the creepy crawlies as frightening as the portrayed yeah. online? <laughs> I, you know, that's my wife, who's Australian, my kids are very, you know, they're all pro-Australian. But the one thing that we certainly don't miss in any way shape or form and i've certainly got some stories about my time in the outback and wild animals and snakes and spiders but we don't miss the fear of what's in the bushes you know you've always got to be on alert for your kids you know the brown snake the inland taipan you know the red belly black snake the you know the um the redback spiders you know it's just everything jellyfish sharks octopus everything wants to kill you you know like it's just <laughs> off the richter scale the funny thing is our little and Used to watch a lot of Peppa Pig. She's on. Uh, she watches Mr. Bean, the cartoon now. It's a different show every week. I digress. <laughs> but apparently, there's an episode of Peppa Pig that's banned in Australia, where she befriends a spider, Mr. Skinny Legs. Yeah, I've because heard this. Mm. because they're not. You know, <laughs> you shouldn't be friends with yeah. spiders in Australia. They will kill well, the, you. The, the, the standard huntsman spider, right? Which is like the standard house spider here in the UK, is the size of a dinner plate. You need a vacuum cleaner to get rid of the bloody thing. Like they just and they jump. They don't just run along. They jump at you. Yeah. And my wife and I's little nephew is right into bugs. And all we see all week is videos on Facebook and Instagram of him catching these monstrous spiders. Oof. And, uh, yeah, it's an, if you're not into bugs and spiders <laughs> and snakes, it's not the best environment. <laughs> there was something comforting. I used to love Steve Irwin as a kid. It was like mm. my favorite show, Crocodile Hunter, Croc Files, and all that stuff. <laughs> there was something comforting in knowing it's thousands of miles away learning about these animals and knowing I'll never bump into them. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, right. that's quite comfortable, right? <laughs> I think there's only four species of snake native to the UK. I could be wrong. It's either three or four. No, I think you're right. The adder's probably the one up there that I can remember. Yeah, I put that in an episode once. I think it was short on content. I had to fill it with something. Start talking about snakes for two minutes. <laughs> so let's go to your career then. So you joined South Australia Police in 2004, spent five years there. Worked your way up from constable to sergeant. How did you get into that? Is that something you've always wanted to be involved in the police service? Yeah. So I'd always, you know, I'm a classic lover of the bill and all things policing. And when I was as young as three and four, my parents said I was kind of infatuated, obsessed with the police. I was a police cadet in Gypsy Hill in London as in from 98 until we moved in 2002. So I, I had a real love for the Met Scotland Yard. That's, you know, my my dream was to go into the flying squad. You know, every young man and woman's dream is, you know, that career detective role. Funnily enough, I, I never became a detective, but that was my love. And then when we moved over to Australia, we had to get permanent residency before I could even apply. So 2004, 2005 rolled around pretty quick. You know, three years we'd been there. I'd actually been to TAFE and studied to be a commercial coxswain. And I was in the Australian Coast Guard as a volunteer driving boats and then the opportunity came up, but I applied for the Northern Territory Police, the Queensland Police, and the South Australian Police as a 19-year-old, very young, and uh, was denied into the Northern Territory and Queensland Police because I was too young and needed life experience. And looking back on it, I don't disagree. But South Australia Police, I flew down there and had the interview. And it's actually a really funny story because technically speaking, I should never have got in because I failed the typing test into the South Australian police. But I remember this chap, Sergeant Steele, big, big handlebar moustache. He let me stay an extra night because I'd flown down there and paid for accommodation. He let me stay an extra night and I reset the test the following day and I failed it again. And he said, listen, I see a lot of Muppets come through here. 
you are not one of those. You're an articulate young man. I'm going to push you through. And he pushed me through. So my dream was kept alive. And I owe a lot to Sergeant Steele for getting me in. So then literally four months later, into early, into early 2005, I was marching through the gates of Taparu in South Australia. I'd moved out of home, moved into state. It was a big thing. My family were very emotional. I remember, remember my dad taking me to Coolangatta Airport and put me on the plane. You know, it was, um, it was a big thing. And, uh, but I have to say, I didn't do any of the partying as a young teenager with, with fellow students. I seemed to leave that until I joined the police because the years I had or the months I had at the police academy in South Australia were some of the, the best memories I have of colleagues and I learning this new vocation of policing. And um, South Australia is a, is a wonderful place to do it. What's the difference between the territories over there because you've made it sound there that it's a lot tougher to get into the northern and was it the western you said as well uh but the southern was a little bit more lenient and not easy to get in but a tiny bit so is there much of a do the north australians poke fun at the south australians how does it how, is it like how it is here yeah it's an interesting question so you've got the the states and territories and then you've got the australian federal police that kind of make up the policing framework of australian law enforcement uh, and then you could throw border force in there as well as a law enforcement agency. And the Northern Territory Police, I didn't get in because I hadn't done my research enough on the geographics and the remoteness and the tourism, because they asked me more tourism-y questions than they did kind of scenario-based questions to see if I'd actually bother bothered kind of researching the Northern Territory. And I'd re- researched all these policey questions, but actually nothing about the place where I'd potentially be working. And that's where I fell over there. The Queensland Police Service has always historically been very strict in terms of wanting people of you know mid-20s they've seen a bit of life experience you know and and that's generally where they've gone whereas the south australian police you know always willing to give people a go that look like they've come from good stock per se and 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 ready to take on the challenges and are a bit mature than their age would probably indicate but you know there isn't any there isn't really any significant difference between the state forces everyone generally operates under the same framework of legislation although it does vary from state to state Internal policies are slightly different in terms of, you know, use of firearms and what type of firearm is different. You know, the types of cars we drive might be different, but ordinarily there isn't a huge amount of difference. Okay. So is it like here where you have to walk the beat for a couple of years? What's what's the first year or two like when you've joined the force? So some of the biggest the biggest difference fundamentally between British policing and Australian policing is you graduate not only armed permanently. So when I graduated, it was a three five seven Magnum revolver, big old thing it was, cannon. And I was absolutely hopeless at the academic shooting. I kid you not. I, I remember being so bad because I'm I'm right I'm uh, left handed, but my eye is right dominated. So I'd be in the firing range with a patch over one eye you know, trying to shoot straight down the range. It was all just going pear-shaped. It took me a little while to get those skills up. And you also have the ability to drive. And that's one thing I was good at. And I was an advanced driver from the minute I graduated. But you're right, you it's very much doing the basics. There isn't so much beat patrols in Australia because it's quite large. Um, yeah, shopping centres, yeah. yes. But other than that, everything's in a car. Uh, and you're in a car crew with a senior officer for your first 12 months of probation, you know, doing all the normal things, traffic tickets, going to what we call 504, sudden deaths, you know, suicides, doing crime scenes, RBTs, you know, uh, breath tests. It's very, very proactive. And you then you get an option to go through different areas within that 12 months, whether it be you're going to Intel, you're going to CIB, 
CID here. And then you can specialize after probably 18 months, two years, you can start to look to where you want to head in terms of your career. But I, throughout most of my career, 12 years was was operational. So, but yeah, it's fundamentally realistically the same, just not as much walking as you probably consider to be here. They do drive on the left out there, right? Like us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all the same. Yeah, yeah. yeah right hand drive and stuff. Okay. Mm-hmm. With this being a murder podcast, mm. do you remember the first murder case you were on, or the first murder you were called to? I. It's, it's an interesting one because most of my work in terms of operationally was, I, I went to a lot of sudden death. And you go to a lot of sudden deaths. And I remember my first one, like it was yesterday, Dorothy Winders. She was an elderly lady uh, who'd actually had a reclining chair. And as she'd gone to click it in, the footrest, you know, when you click a a reclining chair in to stop Mm -hmm. it from reclining, it flicked her out and threw her on the ground and she cracked her head on the the stove. And it was on this this heated kind of stovey thing. And she was in front of it for two days before we got the call that there was a problem. So we'd go to a lot of these incidents thinking, well, what are we dealing with here? And they're often quite gruesome, as you can imagine. You know, the environments are quite challenging. And and as a young probationary constable, you're dealing with a situation that you can't exclude a homicide. You're not only dealing with a traumatic scene, you're dealing with a scene which has been going on for a couple of days before police have been called. So you've got all those natural sort of bodily issues going on in terms of decomposition and the smells that go with that it's quite a challenge to come to to, to deal with that as a and I didn't deal with it overly well (laughs) when I went to my first kind of sudden traumatic death that we suspected could have been a homicide it turned out that it wasn't but that's part of that training process in getting to deal with difficult situations and building up that resilience that I think we all need as police officers and um but I've been very fortunate in my career of 12 years to only have gone to a handful of of homicides which have been quite nasty and as soon as you kind of identify that that's what you're dealing with generally general duties officers in 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 australia back off cordon contain and call in the cib and they sort of take over somewhat immediately but i've dealt with a lot of traumatic death in my career um, from people jumping off of buildings to very serious road traffic traumas so um, i've seen my fair share of um, of challenging confronting scenes that's for sure what would you say is the most common i don't want to say the most common type of murder that's a bit obtuse but like here for example we've got a real problem with knife crime at the Mm. moment especially in the younger generation what in australia as far as you're aware i know it's been a a while since you've worked out there as a cop but was there anything at the time where you think we need to get a hold of this domestic violence domestic violence i think is probably one of the biggest killers in australia in terms and equally outlaw motorcycle gang violence and and gangland violence. If you look at Melbourne in the 80s, 90s and 2000s and still to today, the gangland violence between certain ethnic cohorts is unbelievable in terms of the, the drive-by shootings. I worked on the um, outlaw motorcycle gang task force, Operation Avatar in 2005, 2006. You know, and we're dealing with, you know, outlaw motorcycle gangs and missing members who are alleged to have been put through tree chippers and all sorts of horrific stuff. Oh, but wow. I would suggest domestic violence, not having looked at the statistics of late, as you quite rightly say, but I would suggest that's probably one of the biggest issues in Australia that kills a lot of women. And it's quite, it's very front of mind. I think it's probably no different here, but as you say, gangland crime here is quite bad knife on knife crime, but that's what I would suspect is probably one of the biggest issues. Why do you think that is? I think it's got a lot to do with culture. Australia, 
has, in my view, a heavy drinking culture in terms of it's always in the mix. And when I, when I, I was actually saying to my wife the other day, when we came back to the UK, it wasn't as prevalent because the, the Australian lifestyle is very much outside. So you see everything. So you see people drinking and you see them partying. Whereas here in the UK, all that is done inside home. So it actually probably isn't any bigger in Australia than it is here. You just don't see it so much here because people do it behind closed doors because there isn't an opportunity to go out and socialise much. But I think domestic violence, you look at rural Australia and the challenges, like, for instance, of farmers, we know, and the stresses of managing through drought, managing through different issues which affect the ability to either sell stock, to be able to grow crops etc i think they place a huge amount of pressure on families and some individuals find the only way they can deal with those stresses is taking it out on their partners and families so i suggest there's probably a number of dynamics but i equally worked in a lot in indigenous communities throughout my career and i saw an awful lot of domestic violence to do with alcohol in, in aboriginal communities which is a huge challenge and uh, i can talk more of, about that a bit later on but um that's another huge dynamic of australian policing which i think is um constantly trying to improve that's surprising i wouldn't have thought that admittedly my knowledge of indigenous tribes aborigines and stuff is minimal but saying that a lot of problems with alcohol there that surprises me i wouldn't have expected yeah so i I was i was very 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 lucky and honored to work in some of the most remotest parts of both south australia in on the apy lands and up in the northwest of queensland in communities like burktown and dumagee and they're dry communities for a reason. Dumaji is a dry community for the reason that, sadly, alcohol-related violence in communities causes an awful lot of trauma to families and to individuals. And I, it's a very complex subject. It's one that is very emotive amongst Indigenous communities. In terms of policing those communities, is very challenging. In terms of trying to police in a manner which supports the communities but isn't seen as being heavy-handed, because quite often, you know, you can google and youtube some of these communities and you can see the fallout from arrests that have been made there have been a number of incidents of aboriginals dying in police custody and when you look at the proportionality between white australians and aboriginal australians dying in police custody the the balance has been significantly out and the way that we've been able you know we don't always have to arrest and i think we've made arrests palm island if you were to google palm island and you look at the death in custody of a chap uh, who died at the hands of allegedly a senior sergeant who was charged with uh, his murder and and was acquitted eventually. But, you know, there's sadly Aboriginal communities and policing have a fairly dark history in terms of their ability to overcome certain problems. And it's a really, really difficult subject and a lot of resources are thrown at it. There's still a lot more work to be done, but I've certainly been at the pointy end of that. And I know know the challenge is very real and it's very challenging. Is there any civil unrest between indigenous people there and uh, you sort of call them white australians there is there any infighting between those two or is it is there a mutual respect or anything there there can be you know the australia is made up there's you know there's particular maps and I'll, i'll be honest with you my knowledge on this is although better than most it's still not as good as probably those that are living in those communities but if you look the each australia is broken up into segments of Aboriginal peoples that particular groups come from and they emanate from. So you may have one tribal group in one area and then literally probably 10, 15, 20 kilometres down the road, you'd have another one. There's there's quite a good map out there just shows you all the different ones that exist. 
And, you know, you can have conflicts between the two, which date back hundreds and thousands of years in terms of the areas that they lived in, worked in, you know, lived off the land. But equally, the story of Aboriginals as the first Australians is an incredible one. And one thing that I think Australia probably needs to do as a law enforcement agency is look how effectively the New Zealand police has managed, and New Zealand government for that matter, have have managed the relationship between Maori first New Zealanders and white New Zealanders. Because the relationship, although there's still problems exist, the cultures and the ability for those two cultures to come together has been quite remarkable. Whereas in Australia, I think there are many, many challenges. And this dates back to hundreds of years ago when Captain Cook turned up and, and what Aboriginal people went through at the hands of white people when their land was taken off of them. You know, it was, it was a lot of awful stuff. And so there's a lot of raw wounds still exist today from, from the behaviours of, of our ancestors arriving into Australia hundreds of years ago. Makes sense to me. Makes sense. And assuming that laws still apply to those as well, there's not, is the unique laws as far as the Indigenous people go or is it, are they subject to... I'm just thinking why there's so many issues with deaths in custody and stuff. Is it because the officers don't respect them or are they, are they subject to different laws or is there any logic behind that? So some of the laws that that they, for instance, the killing of natal, native wildlife and fauna, you know, like dugongs and sea turtles, yeah. which are protected species to someone like me. I couldn't go and kill a turtle or a dugong, whereas an Aboriginal Indigenous person can do because it dates back hundreds of years other than that there are not there are there are very few laws where they don't apply to everybody in terms of you know if if i'm found drunk in public i'm drunk in public if i commit an assault i commit an assault regardless of background ethnicity etc but where i think we've gone wrong in the past is again it's a consistent problem is there are many many different government departments you know health child and youth family services and policing and all of those struggle for resources and policing ends up being the band-aid for all of them. And you end up getting involved in sort of mental health where there should be medical practitioners looking after that stuff. There should be people involved in the child youth space. So policing has been reliant upon as the band-aid fix for a lot of shortfalls in government areas. And it's the same right across the world. And policing Australia is no different, um, that it's had to try and do the best it possibly can at times when those resources just don't exist. You know, for, for instance, if you find somebody who's highly inebriated and is of indigenous background, they're probably five times more likely to die in police custody because of their health, their genes, their background, than probably someone like you and I. So that's where policing needs to make a better decision as to do we really need to detain this person, arrest them and put them in police cells, or should we be conveying them to hospital, to a place of safety where they can get medical supervision? And sometimes I think we've made poor decisions in terms of the outcomes of arresting people and taking them to the police cells. But equally, sometimes there's no other option. It's a difficult one. Yeah, it is. It's fascinating to me. But uh, let's move back to your career. Mm. Otherwise, we'll be, <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be here for hours talking about <laughs> the local tribes of, uh, of Australia. So South Australia Police, you were there five years, as I mentioned, and then mm. you joined the Queensland Police Service. So this is, this is one of the two that rejected you initially, right? Back in Correct. In yeah, I went back in 2009. So you went back in there. You spent seven years there, I believe. And Correct. you sort of in different areas there nine to 16 what was the difference between those forces was there anything they could tell straight away or was it just another day job 
Yeah, so not an awful lot in terms. So I came up. There's we're called retreads. So basically, we have the skills of policing, and then basically you transfer forces, and they just kind of retread you in terms of the, their tread pattern. Mm. So you do your twelve weeks at the academy, and then you come out same skill sets, different firearm. You know, use a Glock in Queensland. Again, you drive and you do all the things that were expected of you and you get promoted very quickly as a retread because you've got that policing experience from where you've come from in hindsight although i met my wife and i've got two beautiful children in queensland uh, the south australia to queensland move probably wasn't ever a great one for me i don't reflect you know I, if i could turn back the clock probably i would remained in south australia queensland uh, is an interesting place to police in terms of in terms of the people, the culture, I'd never heard of professional standards until I'd moved to Queensland. I was working in Surface Paradise, which is a pretty full-on environment. It's a, it's a public order, street offences, gang crime, drugs, you know, strip clubs. It's that kind of very seditious, nefarious type environment. You know, it's very full-on policing. And, and I was there, you know, during some fairly extensive inquiries into younger officers getting drawn into that world of kind of nefarious activities and getting too close to certain environments. So um, as a shift supervisor there, you are constantly challenged in kind of managing young people on your team, keeping them level-headed and not getting carried away and starting to, you know, use of force and just managing and supervising is really, really full-on in that environment. And and Surface Paradise certainly is a fantastic place to learn your trade as a young police officer. And even as an experienced one, it opens your eyes to the many different challenges that those environments offer you. I was in a tactical crime squad on the Gold Coast, you know, where we deal with hotspot areas and we're flying around. And I spent a little bit of time in the police chopper, which was quite exciting, you know. So all these different areas provide you different insights to kind of grow and expand your career. But very quickly, I took promotion and went out to the sticks. Just before I move on to the sticks, how common is it then for young officers to get taken across to the dark side by the lure of whether it's, you know, sex drugs and rock and roll as it were i you know british policing is going through a huge period of turbulence at the moment in terms of and i hate this saying but you know bad apples you know there's always going to be a couple of people that should never have really got through you know in terms of fail, you know skipping managing to get through vetting and not really being able to analyze them appropriately until they get out on the road and and and, and the organizations of policing are no different in australia but i I'd say, you know, there are thousands and thousands of officers in Queensland and, and each one of them does an incredible job. But you're always going to have that odd occasion where one makes a poor decision and, and, and ends up caught up in something they don't wish to. It's very far and few between in answer to your question. But and, and I think probably what is very effective has got better and better is the Ethical Standards Command within the police in Queensland responds very quickly to any sort of allegations. And often it's revolving around data protection, accessing, accessing the computer systems inappropriately, providing data to other people they shouldn't do. But like I say, if you look back, the, the biggest controversies to hit the Queensland Police Service in years gone by, the Fitzgerald Inquiry, where it went right to the top in terms of corruption involving the commissioner who ended up serving a period of time in prison for for his behavior so but you know it's it's very far and few between when it does happen when it is identified it's dealt with very very quickly the story will continue after these quick messages and now back to the story so talk to me about the outback yeah well there's a lot of it that's <laughs> to start with so um <laughs> how big is it compared to what because we think it's massive are we yeah, even it's thinking huge. it's massive are we underestimating how big it is it's huge so so I went out to a place in southwest Queensland called Hungerford, which 
in itself. And, and ironically, I don't live too far away from a place called Hungerford here in the UK, which is fairly famous, sadly, for the Michael Ryan incident back in yeah. the um, 80s, Hungerford 90s. Massacre, yeah, that's right. So, um, so and in, in my Hungerford in Queensland, there was only 12 people living in the town and my family made up four of those. But it's a border town with the border of New South Wales. And basically, you're out there as not only a representative of the police, you're also out there as a representative of the fire brigade, the ambulance, Queensland Transport. So you're registering cars, you're giving people driving tests, you're giving them driver's license. You take on this multifaceted role, as well as, you know, the policing change dramatically. You become a community cop. You know, you become the guy that people go to, or girl, in that for that mind, who they go to for support to talk about things. Mental health issues are massive out there because, you know, people are isolated and they're lonely and it's very hot. It's the middle of nowhere. And quite frankly, I think both my wife and I would agree that we weren't prepared for the challenges that were going to present us in terms of when it rains, you can't go anywhere because the roads become unpassable. Day one, we arrived. My wife was chased around the garden by a snake. And there I was with Glock out trying to shoot a brown snake, <laughs> trying to bite my wife, you know, and we'd only just arrived. You know, all this stuff, you know, the doctors come in by aeroplane, you know, the Royal Flying Doctor Service, one of the most amazing organizations there is in Australia. But my patrol area was massive. It would take me two hours to get to one end. So it's like two hours by two hours by two hours. You know, my patrol area is about 15,000 square kilometers, if not more. And my biggest challenge working in that remote area was illegal pig hunting. So people coming up from New South Wales and Sydney pig hunting with very, very powerful firearms. or felons crossing the border coming through in stolen vehicles every so often not regularly but the policing was so much different out there it was incredible and, and quite frankly it was more of a simple life when things went bad they went very very bad i crashed a car out there and certainly realized what it meant to drive safely because i was in a troop carrier and i rolled it in bad weather and had to walk four hours with an injury with all my gear over me that's when i realized nobody comes down the road you know, you see a car every two or three hours and you're very vulnerable if you make mistakes and you, and, and you behave inappropriately. The environment will bite you. Just got this image of you, like Benny Hill style, trying to shoot this, <laughs> this snake in the back garden. <laughs> well, there is, do you know what is so funny? Because when I, well, it's not funny, but it, was, it is looking back on it. When I rolled my car, I'd just been to Kanamala, which is just up the road, and they wrap your groceries. They're very kind. They wrap it all up, you know, and they put it in a box. And I just wanted to get home. It was a two and a half hour drive back to Hungerford, so it's a long way. And I said to this cashier, I said, Don't worry about wrapping the groceries, you know, like it's not like I'm going to roll the car. Oh. Anyway, lo and behold, two hours later, I'm upside down. I've been hit in the head by a rogue apple out of this box. And I'd crawled out of this car, having survived rolling the car three times in the bush, a bit shaken, a bit of an injury to my head. I was standing in the middle of this dirt road. The sun was just setting. It was starting to get a little bit chilly. So I thought, well, I'm not too far from the National Park. If I fire off a couple of rounds, maybe somebody in the National Park will hear and will come out to investigate. So there I was in the middle of this road. I got my Glock out and fired three rounds, bang, 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 into the sky. And then for some reason, I had this kind of moment where I thought, Jesus Christ, I've just fired three rounds into the sky. They've got to come down. I've, like, I've survived a car crash. Now I'm going to get hit by some sort of rogue 40 caliber bullet coming out of the sky. I don't know why I stupidly thought that because the chances were slim. So I was running up and down the road like a bloody lunatic thinking, oh, I don't want to die from a rogue bullet. But uh, then my four-hour walk home, my wife 
greeted by me at the porch going, where's the car? And I'm like, well, it's up the road. I've just had a car crash. <laughs> Not how are you? You know, where's, where's the groceries? Boy, where's did I get in trouble for crashing that car, I tell you what. So let's have a look here at the CV that I've got in front of me. So you spent about seven years in the Queensland Police Service. Yeah. Any, or what's the percentage? You'd have to give me a percentage, but roughly, how many incidents do you get called to, given you're in the outback that's <laughs> animal-related? Is that your job or is that Steve Owen's job? Well, in, so in southwest Queensland, when I was at Hungerford, I probably got called out to half a dozen snake jobs where a snake was in someone's house and they needed help getting it out and i was not the man to call for that job because i just i was just you know it's not my bag of tricks i remember i got called out to one house at one a barn fire traffic crash and then when my colleague up at eulo which is another hour 50 minutes up the road if he was on leave that he had a pub i had a pub you know you'd get called out to occasional pub issues but one thing that always used to frustrate me was is that people would come into town for holidays. People would buy these little shacks, and they just think they could behave how they wanted to. You know, they'd drive around without any reg- without any insurance or registration on their vehicles, and they go, Ollie, it's the Outback. Who cares? And I'd be like, well, no, what's the point of me being here if I can't tell you to do the right thing? But it's, it was it was a lifestyle position of just you were just there as a community kind of representative and just support people when things did go bad. and. You know, it was very, very far and few between. But when it did go bad, it would be very serious. Like a, they um, muster out there goats and sheep, and they use gyrocopters, these kind of sort of half-assed helicopter things, which, you know, it's like a seat with a helicopter blade and a rear blade and mm-hmm. dreadfully unsafe things. And they would drop out the sky quite regularly, you know. So, you, were, you know, if you were going to a fatality of an aviation incident, it'd be one of those things. And a poor pilot who was there mustering goats has dropped out the sky. And obviously that, that when those things fall out the sky, it doesn't end well for anybody. So, uh, yeah, that would probably be the most serious thing. And then traffic crashes is another thing because people just don't respect the outback, much like myself when I had my prank. I could imagine a lot of people drive through it quite unprepared. Well, sleeping is the problem because the distance is so big. When I was at South, I, fin- I finished up at South Australia just one o'clock back as, a, as an OIC of a small country station. And I was working the rural highways and I got called out in the middle of the night once to a triple fatality because someone had fallen asleep at the wheel of a Tarago. And f- the one thing that's big in Australia is the trucks. You know, you're talking four or five carriages long going back there. So that's a lot of weight pouring down the highway at 90 kilometers an hour. And I remember going to a fatal once, triple fatality of a, of a Tarago versus a B-triple. And it was the most unpleasant scene I'd ever been to because the people, the victims, were literally in the engine block of this truck. It was quite horrific. And you're there by yourself, you know, 45 minutes to an hour before anybody gets there to help you. Um, so it's rather unpleasant, but it's just another one of those jobs of country policing is the rural traffic crashes are always pretty serious. Wow, that's awful. Mm. That's an horrendous image. Mm. So when you when you left the force in 2016, what made you come to that decision? Was that voluntary or? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. And I was always chasing promotion pretty aggressively. And probably the promotion I took up to Northwest Queensland was probably the worst decision I ever made because I was very young and I don't think I was ready for that level of responsibility that quickly. And and I'd suggest burnout was probably was the killer for me you know, taking on too much, you know, you, you suddenly got this kind of strategic view of the of the department rather than just the operational one. You've got officers to worry about. And it's not like you've got other staff around you, you're rural. 
and then you throw in the mix the complexities of policing in indigenous communities it's really 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 quite challenging and by 2016 I was so burnt out I just fell out of love with policing and you know my wife moved back to Brisbane with our children she had had enough of living rural so that was the point where I kind of drew a line in the sand and thought to myself I wonder what opportunities exist outside of policing I've always been a big believer in the fact that I think each of us in policing as a timeline, some people do 30 years, some people do 12 like me, some people do 15, 20, you know, and those that do 13 are able to manage what they see and what they go through. I take my hat off them. I, I started to become quite an angry man and that wasn't a nice trait. So I decided to draw a line in the sand and left and, and pursued this, this life in the private sector, albeit I went back in sort of government work, working overseas pretty quickly. So you spent a couple of years in Australian Border Force after that. What was your role there? So when I left policing, there's probably I, I've left out a couple of roles which were quite small ones when I departed from policing. I actually went into retail very shortly after going to policing to get a totally different perspective on life, to under, you know, just to kind of understand where I wanted to go. And then after that very short stint in retail, uh, I actually went into the, the RSPCA as a senior animal investigator investigating animal cruelty. And I thought, this is nice, you know, this is, you know, love of animals, you know, telling, you know, and, and investigating people who can't treat animals well and holding them to account. But I found myself dealing with the same people I'd been dealing with for the past 12 years, but this time with no powers or ability to deal with them as, <laughs> as I would like to have dealt with them, you know, so I found it very frustrating. And then this job came up as a professional standards investigator working overseas in the country of Nauru up in the Marshall Islands. It's a four hour flight on a 737 out in the middle of nowhere in an environment which had been a significant political hot potato for the governments of both Labour and the coalition in terms of managing illegal immigration into Australia, people coming in via boat very much like they do coming across the English Channel. And, you know, the Australian government's got a very strict immigration process. And there I was thrown onto the island of Nauru overseeing the conduct of staff for the security provider and for the other providers to make sure that we were looking after the people we were empowered to look after and support. Who And some of these people had come from incredibly troubled backgrounds. So it was an incredible position and I did it for a little while, but it was very full on 12 hour days. You know, it was, it was fascinating. But um, whilst I was off Island, I was kind of establishing myself in the private sector of investigations and intelligence security risk management. And then I you know, made the jump away from full-time government work. This might not be relevant to you, and no offence, <laughs> but was there any part of you working as a, a border force person thinking, hang on, I'm not even from Australia, who am I to tell you? You can't go. <laughs> well, at that point then, I'd got two passports, so I suppose I... Do you feel part Australian? Yeah, well, not. my wife would say no. I'm, you know, whenever there was test cricket on, I'm always supporting England. Whenever I have a pretty bad joke that I support, England and anyone playing Australia and <laughs> because I'd always found the cricketers pretty arrogant they're always really good at everything and you know I was always keen to see England do well when they were traveling for the ashes in Australia but it was my home and you know my wife's Australian the kids as I said so you know I was proud to be doing my part in trying to make a positive impact because once I actually left that professional standards role and then became a security manager in charge of one of the entire centers over there so then I was overseeing heaps of but not both both local staff and our own staff you know i had a on any particular shift i'd have 80 to 100 people under my command you know it was incredible just a fascinating place to work and nauru as a country is incredible it's it's beautiful but equally you know underlying 
areas of trouble and concern within its own sort of government culture. But um, yeah, fascinating role. So at what point did you move back to the UK? Because for your kids, not sure how old they are, but that must have been similar to like when you moved to Australia, turning into an adult, they're now moving to the UK. Yeah, so they were a lot younger than I was. So um, what are we now? So they would have been eight and six, eight and seven, something like that. So when I finished up on Nauru, I'd kind of made this separation from sort of this full-time government work into the private sector. I'd established my own little business, an investigative consultancy firm, which grew very, very quickly. And, you know, I found this niche of being able to leverage my skill set that I had gathered over my policing career and how I could use it effectively in the private sector in crisis management, reputation and risk and investigations. And I cut my teeth on a massive extortion matter coming out of Hong Kong, working for the firm I'm working for now. And that was a fascinating case, you know, on a commercial level, it was incredible, you know, so I was like, well, this is the world that I want to be in, you know, why would I, why would I want to go back to policing when there's this whole other side of the private sector, which was just so attractive. And then I, when I finished up that job, I ended end up getting engaged by a family in Sydney and I got a chap off death row in Singapore with a couple of colleagues I brought on board with me. And then after winning an award in the UK as the UK's investigator of the year, I then got approached by Ion Asia, the firm I now work for, and, and they bought out my company. And then we were able to move back to London because I always wanted to come home, but it's coming home to something. There are so many fantastic investigators and security professionals across London. They're ex-Flying Squad, they're ex-5 and 6, you know, security services, they're ex-GCHQ, all these incredible people now working outside of those agencies in the private sector. It's, it's, it's sometimes hard to stand above them. So my, I was looking for this kind of unique selling point, this USP that we talk about. And and risk in Asia and China, Hong Kong, Singapore, Japan, South Korea was really attractive for me. So that's what I inevitably came back to start up on is to lead the charge here in London on supporting clients with risk in that area. So what sort of clients do you have? Is it businesses mainly or do you do individuals also? Do you know what? I've been so incredibly lucky, albeit, you know, we make our own luck and I work very, very hard. I've been so very, very lucky to to work for some of the biggest brands around the world, you know, helping them develop crisis management strategies, investigative and intelligence strategies to overcome really significant problems, whether it be in the illicit trade of tobacco, whether it be looking for fake cans of a particular soft drink um, that's being made and then shipped to the Middle East, whether it be working for global jewelry brands that have issues with in terms of internal loss prevention or fires or critical critical infrastructure problems, you know, all these things I now get called upon, you know, I've been to number 10 Downing Street. You know, I've sat with a special advisor for policing to the prime minister. You know, I've sat and worked for one of the most important families in this country, advising through very difficult situations. I pinch myself that I have these opportunities. And, you know, I was no homicide detective, but I know how to investigate. I've worked hard. I further skilled myself since leaving policing. And now for me, the art of success leaving policing is all about meeting new people and it's about engaging and demonstrating because people don't buy into the company per se they buy into you as the person because they entrust you with some of the biggest problems they've got and yeah i've been very very i've been working on a kidnapping uh, in the caribbean for an for about 12 18 months now leading on that investigation as the sio the senior investigating officer you know, and giving briefings to the flying squad of the national crime agency's anti-kidnapping extortion unit stuff 
that I wanted to do when I was a kid, you know, that dream of being that investigator. And here I am briefing these departments on something that I'm running with. And they're sitting there going, my God, Oliver, how, how have you got this to this point? You know, so I, it's yeah, been absolutely amazing experience over these past three or four years being back in London and being exposed to some of the most incredible investigations that I could never have dreamed of doing, really, if I'm honest with you. Certainly sounds like what you do now is more rewarding based on the on the cop work. Would that be a fair assumption? Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. You know, part of me still misses policing and part of me still feels like I have unfinished business in that area of my life. But there is no way I could go back to it now because, the, you know, I was I was looking the other day just out of interest. The National Crime Agency of currently advertising roles in, you know, the anti-kidnapping extortion unit paying £28,000 a year. And I just can't see how you could get good people into an organization paying that much. It's just incredible, you know, like it's, um, uh, so, but yeah, it's, it, it is, it's incredibly rewarding because you, you see things from start to finish and you build a relationship with these clients. It's not like policing, you go from job to job to job to job to job. It's all night, you know, it's just eight hours of going to burglary after domestic violence, after sudden death, you know, and mental health jobs. And, you know, the, the art of policing is so complex. And in the private, and you have all these powers and you have all this legislation to fall back on and to use to help you. Whereas in the private sector, you've got to be very dynamic in terms of coming up with investigative strategies where you don't have those powers. You don't have, you know, in Australia, the PPRA or you don't, you know, here you don't have pace. You know, you don't have those powers. It's it's the art of communication. It's the art of good research. We call, we call it open source intelligence investigations or then using human source intelligence and then cyber analysis capabilities and it's about bringing to the table a good understanding as to what's out there to help people be in a stronger position to either get out of a pickle, as I call it, or to go after somebody that's taken advantage of them. You know, I look after people that have lost millions and millions of dollars in, in love scams, as an example, you know, and we pursue beneficiaries across the world. And it's, in, it's incredible. And I've been to some amazing places, you know, I, which I would never have experienced in policing. You know, I've been to the Caribbean, I've been to throughout Europe now, I've been to Hong Kong, you know, it's endless, and, and and it's just about chasing a dream, really, of trying to be as good as you possibly can be. You mentioned you felt like you had unfinished business in police, and why is that? Because I dreamed of being a commissioner. I dreamed of being a Mark Rowley, a Neil Basu. I have so much admiration for those individuals that get wheeled out the front of Scotland Yard, which is never a great sign for any senior officer who's got to give a briefing to the public. I interviewed on my podcast Neil Basu a while ago, He's a man that I have so much respect for, not only because he was the highest ranking minority officer in the police at the time I interviewed him and spoke to him about his career in policing, but but equally just his leadership style. And and that's what I always set out to be, you know, always wanting to be able to lead a police department and, and make changes. Because I always used to say to my officers, because coppers whinge an awful lot. And there's that saying, and I, and I hate it, you know, there's that saying that the job's fucked. And I, and I hate that saying with a passion because if it's that bad, you need to get promoted so you can make changes so that it's not, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and I was always very passionate about trying to get as high as I possibly could, you know, so that my kids and my family would be proud of me. But equally, you know, you don't need a uniform or rank to achieve, you know, I've, I've learned that and come to terms with that. But uh, yeah, that's, you know, I do look often and think, what if, but um yeah, that, that, that chapter's closed now. So does that mean, it, it sounds to me, and I'm no therapist, but it sounds to me a little bit like, although you're doing wonderful things at the moment, and by the sounds of it, you absolutely are, mm. and loving it from what I can tell, from the way, you, you know, your enthusiasm and stuff. 
is there a part of you that doesn't actually feel that your family's proud of you for not getting to that level in the police? Because it sounds like that a little bit to me. Once upon a time, I probably believed that, but I know now that's not the case. I think when I left in 2016, having done what I'd done, you know, and walked away from it, you know, putting family first, ultimately, I thought I'd potentially let family down. The defining moment for me outside of policing was probably when I won that award in 2019, 2020, getting the Investigator of the Year Award for, for a case which made global papers for me was probably the writing on the wall in terms of policing certainly has made me what I am today, but it doesn't define me. It doesn't define any of us. And, and, I, I, and what I do now is because I recognize that, you know, I work for a lot of organizations, Trojan Wellbeing, one of those where we support officers with their transition, you know, those that are suffering from mental health issues and those struggling with the transition out of policing, because it is a family, the camaraderie, you know, it's the people. And sometimes people like myself, we see things through rose tinted glass. Go, oh God, it'd be so much better to be back in the police. But really what we do on the outside of policing, I think is far more rewarding than probably what we can achieve in policing. But yeah, so it's, um, yes, probably five, six, seven years ago, I would have said, yeah, that, you know, I, I think I've probably let a few people down in terms of what I didn't achieve. But now with all the amazing work that I do do, and people often say to me, my goodness me, I'd love to do what you do. You know, I, I have to be, you know, I humble and, you know, I pinch myself to, to see how lucky I am to, to do the job I do. And equally to get the support from the management team within Iron Age. My chairman, Derek Elmer, is an incredibly supportive individual. He's an incredible entrepreneur. And we're, you know, we're, we're always doing fascinating work together. So, you know, I've just got a different family around me now. It just doesn't wear a uniform. Do you suffer at all from imposter syndrome? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I thought you yeah, I, yeah, I do. Yeah. And, and that's when, you know, I sit in rooms and go, surely, you know, I was sat in a living room a couple of years ago, pinching myself going, surely someone's going to come in in a minute and go, uh, could you come out a second? Cause you're not supposed to be in here. Uh, you know, I say, you know, I sit in, you know, I've sat with mates now in number 10 talking about issues around policing and, and due diligence and risk and ESG. And we talk about these flashy words in the private sector. And I think, what am I doing here? You know, like this is just, and I've got a mate of mine who's just left the net national crime agency. He's now a global investigations manager for an insurance company. And, and, you know, we talk about this often together, you know, but, you know, you slow. Yes, from time to time, I do still question it. But, you know, the more and more success I have, you know, my wife reminds me that you're far more successful than a lot of the people around you. So just remember that. So, yeah, we do. You do have to continue to remind yourself. Oh, absolutely. I think it's quite common. A lot of people say the same thing. So, but let's talk about your podcast then. Cause we saw you sort of segued into it there with what you were saying uh, about having. Neil Basu. Neil yeah, Basu on, on the pod there. So mm. Protect and Serve is the pod. You've been going, what, four or five months, I think you said? At, at so the top six of the months. So I started it six months ago. So my, my younger brother, who's still in Australia, been a radio DJ his entire life, he's moved into this podcasting world. And because I'm always saying these anecdotal stories that I have in terms of some of my experiences, and I, at the dinner table, I always try and recall a couple of funny ones. He said, why don't you start interviewing people and reliving their careers. And I thought to myself, I, I'd wanted to do something which explored and celebrated the life of police officers because, you know, the Met was getting such a hard time with reputation. I wanted to show you that there were hundreds, if you know, hundreds and hundreds of officers, both current and, and ex-Met, and, and globally for that matter, because I've interviewed people outside of the Met and, and British policing that have done 
you know, they're ordinary people that have done extraordinary things, you know. And I've got a very close friend of mine, Wes Wong, who was the ground commander on 9-11. He was stuck in the South Tower when it collapsed. And uh, he was over here a couple of weeks ago and we had dinner together. And, and he was my first guest. Um, I just wanted to demonstrate and get out to the public the best way I possibly could that some of the jobs that our police go to are incredibly confronting. They're incredibly challenging. You know, the unsung heroes are the wives and the husbands and the families that stand behind these successful men and women in uniform. And I just wanted to celebrate rather than, but, you know, there's a number of podcasts out there which are critical of British policing and, you know, where it's going, where it's been from. And we get all that. And that's all fairly evident. But for me, and, 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 and they're important platforms, but for me, it was about celebrating the amazing work that some people have done, you know, like Peter Spindler and Operation Utree and bringing and, and understanding the gravity and, and seditious nature of Jimmy Savile and Gary Glitter and those other entertainers that took advantage and abused young people. Those people, you know, those careers need celebrating and talking about and, and remembering. So it's, yeah, so that's basically the base of it, really. And I've been, I've been so humbled by the people that have come on so far. It's amazing the people that will give up the time to speak to you. I've spoke to a few officers on here and it's just fascinating to learn about these people's careers because they're all kind of similar in, in their training, especially if they're all based in Britain. You know, they walk the beat and then they progress through and stuff, but everyone's got stories to tell. It's just fascinating. How's the best way that you approach people? How do you find people? Is it from your LinkedIn sleuthing? <laughs> There's a bit of that. I do it outside of workouts. It's totally my own time. I, I interview people either very late on a Friday night or on a Saturday or Sunday. And then my brother goes away and he does. I, I He's the master behind it all because he puts <laughs> sound effects in and he does all this incredible stuff. The editing takes hours. You know, my interviews, the longest one I've done was with Tony Long, who obviously is famously known for the, you know, the, the, his, his shootings in the UK. And, uh, but and we, 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 we spoke for like three and a half hours. <laughs> my brother's messaging me because they're on WhatsApp as I'm interviewing going, this is going on a bit. This is a monumental edit coming up here. But, <laughs> and I can see him frowning. But I've had you know a number of people approach me because of the style and what I'm trying to do and they feel comfortable coming on. Whereas you know there may be some other platforms where they're just not comfortable with maybe the line of questioning that people may go down. Um, I don't know. But I, equally, a lot of people I reach out to you know, and they've been very kind with their time. You know, I send them the questions I'm going to ask. Some case, you know, some are more challenging than others because, you know, for instance, when I interviewed Neil Basu, he was still in the police at that time, you know, and we, right. so, you, you, you know, I'm respectful that we've got to be careful with what we ask and, and, and their answers that are going to come out, you know, and here's one particularly was the day after the queen died. So not only did we reflect right. on her life of service, but equally, you know, because he was in charge of her security for many years as head of counterterrorism in SO15, it was um, remarkable. Yeah, I just find guests, I get introduced to people. Networking has been my biggest tool since leaving policing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's the, anybody who doesn't try to increase their network and get to know other people and learn from them is doing themselves a huge disfavor because it's, remarkable what you can do and linkedin is such a fascinating platform it's getting a little bit facebooky you know people starting yeah. to and, and i find that frustrating but equally i get so much out of it i just hide those people that post <laughs> the whole family stuff it's not the platform for that for me personally although i get some of the issues but next year for me my so series one comes to an end in the next week we've got one episode releasing next monday and then we start series two and 
I'm making a strong move in the first part of next year and celebrating women in policing and, 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 you know, minority groups, because it's so important in terms of going forward as to what we, where, where we want British policing to go. Cool. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. I think it's, it's interesting as well. You kind of touched on it. There is the opportunity to learn from these people because Sometimes podcasts I listen to, I feel like they would potentially turn down a guest because they're not high profile enough. They don't think it could benefit their exposure or they'd find it quite hard to market. If you just like talking to people, you can learn from anyone. doesn't matter what job they do. They don't have to be a police officer. They could be anything. You can learn from anyone if you just speak to people and listen to them. And that's what I like doing with my interviews. But yeah, a lot of people sort of turn the nose up at some guests which i find really bizarre i think you're missing out on you don't know what you're missing out on well people want headliners don't they and if you know i i I look at my numbers of podcasts and and listen there's been some i interviewed a chap who's a good friend of mine called roman quadvalig and he was the australian border force commissioner uh and arguably and he won't mind me saying you know was treated very very badly on his exit out of the abf for allegations which were never proven and, and but such a remarkable guy, so intelligent. And, you know, he's been over here advising on immigration issues. And he's just, and he came on and I knew, and it was the first interview he'd really done in public. And the numbers were were through the roof, you know, incredible listening figures. And and I don't, my biggest issue is marketing it. I'm not the great greatest marketer for these things, you know. So I put it out on LinkedIn and I generally allow that audience to grow it organically. Mm-hmm. I don't advertise it, you know, because the success of podcasts from what my younger sibling tells me is is longevity and consistency so that's all i aim for is just interviewing is just getting one out a week talking to people having a conversation then reflecting on generally three big jobs throughout their career and talking about them and how they got through them cool so when's season two coming out have you got a, a date for that yeah, so season two will be the um, probably the second, third, yeah, second week of January. We'll probably get season two underway. We're doing a bit of a, you know, end of season one debrief, the highs, you know, people we interviewed have no stuff that we got out of it, all the exciting stuff. And yeah, season two of Protect and Serve will be yeah, second week of Jan. And then it's um, hunting down new guests again. I've, I've, I've got a couple of major ones coming on. I won't deny that. There's some there's hopefully some groundbreakers there in terms of first public appearances. And uh, mm-hmm. so I'm excited for it. And it's something I'm enjoying doing outside of work. It's, I find it kind I find it kind of lethargic and it feels that it fills that policing void, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you know, I, I should say, you. you know, I've sometimes what it, wish what it would like to be back in policing. It does that for me. You know, it kind of gives me that kind of closeness that I, you know, I probably yearn for to, to have those interactions with colleagues. Well, if everything goes to plan with my release date for this episode, season two for yourself will have been out probably about four or five weeks because if and I'm, I'm predicting things as i record this hopefully the date right now to my listeners is february 13th if all goes to plan not a friday is it <laughs> it's, it'll be a monday it'll be a monday yeah it's not a nice. friday not a, not a bad well could be a bad luck day but it's not a friday so that's a good start so check out season one and Brand new season two with some groundbreaking guests. I mm. hope. I hope. But yeah, before we sort of close out, I normally ask people if there's anything in, that they feel has changed them in their life, whether it's an experience that, you know, molded you as a person or the other one I would normally ask is, is there any piece of advice you would give your younger self or any aspiring coppers, for example? Yeah. So, well, if I was to look back at my younger self, I would tell myself to slow down. 
slow down and enjoy the ride rather than rushing it. You know, any career should be a marathon, not a sprint. So that's what I would tell my younger self. To young officers coming in, I would always say a bad decision is better than no decision. And as long as you're acting with the best intent at heart, I wish you to used to say to my officers, I was very fortunate to lead. As long as you're acting with the right intent and you tell me the truth, we can always try and resolve an issue. And as I speak on this podcast tonight, it's actually probably a poignant moment to remember that two of my former colleagues, not close colleagues, but Queensland police officers were shot and killed last week in Queensland doing a very mundane missing persons inquiry. You know, so it's at the moment, the Queensland police service is hurting significantly at the loss of two very junior officers who were ambushed and executed by three of the most abhorrent people in society. So quite a troubling period for, you know, and their funerals are next week. So my heart goes out to their fam- families and friends. Oh, so to so the younger generation, it's just understanding the risks are out there. Policing is a very dangerous vocation uh, and it requires um, a level of calm and, and an ability to overcome really quite challenging issues sometimes. But what happened last week was certainly out of the ordinary and, and, and one of the most deadliest days for queensland policing in in history i think it's the first ever female police officer to be killed in the line of duty i believe um but i was talking to a friend of mine assistant commissioner former assistant commissioner graham rinders and we talk very regularly and it was yeah very troubling um it's never nice to lose colleagues but yeah so that's sad yeah for some context we're recording this december 18th so to say that their funerals are going to be just before christmas is absolutely tragic that's awful horrific Anyway, sorry to finish on such a somber note, but yeah, that's what (laughs) that's what I tell my younger self to slow down. Okay, no, that's good. Has there been an experience in your life where you thought, "Oh my God, I'm a changed man"? Doesn't have to be work related. Could be birth of your kid or something. (laughs) Do you know? You know, the the day my wife and I got married in Queenstown in New Zealand on a glacier, and that was the most incredible experience ever. Incredible experience. And I and I must admit, on a personal note. You know, my, my father's been struggling with some health battles of late and I've been in I've been spending a lot of time in a neurology award. And that's where you realise how fragile life really is. Is you go in there and you see people that are on got tubes coming out of everywhere, they've got machines keeping them alive. So you think to yourself, Crikey O'Reilly, we shouldn't take life for granted. It's very, very fragile. So uh, that's a touchstone moment for me to kind of embrace the opportunities that we get in front of us. It's not all about money, money, money you know, most of it, because sometimes we can all get a bit money orientated, a little bit too heavy, and I'm guilty of that sometimes. So where can people find you? Just LinkedIn or have you got a website or anything? Well, where can people find me, crikey? Yeah, um, yeah so I, so <laughs> um, we, you know, our company, Ion Asia, has a, has a corporate website, as you would imagine, www.ionasia.com.hk for Hong Kong. I am a huge advocate on LinkedIn. I do some guest lecturing at the University of East London on cybersecurity, uh, crisis management and investigations. And, but yeah, LinkedIn is the platform where people can reach out to me and say hello. And, and if they you know, want to get together for a coffee, I'm more than open to always meeting as many people as I possibly can. So other than that, I uh, yeah, live in the beautiful part of uh, West Berkshire and uh, yeah, enjoy country walks, but love the city when I go into town. Cool. So we are going to close out now. Any final thoughts or give me a, give me a quote to finish on. Give me a, a sound bite I could use for the artwork. <laughs> no pressure. Um, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Is that one of yours? Or? <laughs> no, no. So, so I don't know where that came from. They are, someone often, someone attributes to Winston Churchill, but I know it's not him. 
But it's, yeah, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people, good men to do nothing. I, it should be people, not really men, yeah. but good people to do nothing. And I reflect on that often with some of the cases I take on against some really yucky people. You know, if it wasn't for us doing what we did, you know, they'd get away with it. So that's one I kind of live by. I like it. So, Oliver Lawrence, thank you for your time this Friday evening. Friday? What day are we on? Sunday? Sunday night. It was going to be Friday. Now it's Sunday. Yeah. That's fine. We rearranged it. But yeah, appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. For everyone else, hopefully, I don't even know what my schedule is. Let me look at my schedule. There should be a normal episode out this coming Thursday, which will be, what, February the 16th, I believe. This could all go peak tongue by the time I get there, but... As we always say, that's it for now. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Birders. Until next time, cheerio.